Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Luke 22, Luke 22, and uh, verse 39. Luke 22 from verse 39. We read, And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. In his commentary on Luke 22, Phil Riken writes, Think of the darkest place you have ever been. Think of the place of anguish and pain and discouragement and despair. Think of the place where you were alone in your suffering and all your worst fears were about to come true. Think of the place where the one thing you wanted was the one thing that God determined you could not have. Think of the place where you were trapped and there seemed to be no way out. Think of the place where you wished to God that you could be anywhere else in the universe except in the place where you were. Think of the place where things got so bad that you almost thought that you were going to die and maybe you almost did. Jesus went to that dark place and a place even darker in the garden they call Gethsemane. This morning I want to linger for a few moments in this very dark place and to consider Luke's portrait of Jesus as we prepare our minds and our hearts for coming to his table this evening. We're going to focus on the command, then the commitment, and finally the compassion. First we have the command. Look at verses 39 to 40 where Luke presents us with the command of Jesus. Before we go any further, let's take a little tour of Luke 22. Verses 1 and 2, we find the chief priests and scribes plotting the death of Jesus. Verses 3 down to 6, we find Satan entering Judas and he meets with the chief priests and agrees to betray Jesus. Verses 7 down to 23, we find Jesus instituting his Holy Supper that will point to his death and what it will accomplish. Verses 24 to 30, we find the disciples arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest. And then in verses 31 to 38, we find Jesus warning the disciples that Satan, the devil, is wanting to sift them as wheat, but he assures them that he has prayed for them. And now in verse 39, we see the place where Jesus goes. Luke tells us that he went to the Mount of Olives. This was a hill that overlooked the city of Jerusalem. It was a place where Jesus often taught the disciples. It was a place where Jesus would frequently teach the disciples. It was a place where Jesus would often commune with his Father in prayer. It was a place where Jesus would lodge each night. Luke highlights that it was his custom to come to this place. If you were in Jerusalem and you wanted to have access to Jesus, you wanted to find Jesus, you would start by going to the Mount of Olives. And Luke tells us that the disciples followed him. That is what the disciples do. They follow Jesus. In Luke 5, we find Peter and James and John leaving their nets and following Jesus. Then in the same chapter, Levi leaves his tax booth 
and he follows Jesus. And now the disciples are still following Jesus and they're following him up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. They're all there, all of them apart from Judas, who has gone off to assist in the arrest of Jesus. And in verse 40, we hear the command that Jesus gives. Luke tells us that they came to the place. Matthew and Mark Uh, fill in the details as they tell us that the place that they came to was called Gethsemane. This was a garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that contained an oil press. And upon coming to this place, upon coming to Gethsemane, Jesus commands the disciples to pray so that they will not enter into temptation. They're about to enter into a great storm. Jesus is going to call it the hour of the power of darkness. And the disciples will find themselves being tried and tested as they find themselves in that particular storm. They will find themselves being tossed. They will find themselves being thrown about in such a way that they will be in danger of falling away from Jesus completely. And so Jesus urges them to pray so that they will not fall into Satan's temptation and abandon him altogether and thus make a shipwreck of their faith in this storm. Because that is what storms do. Storms can make a wreck of ships. And storms in the life and the experience of the believer, the Christian, can make a shipwreck of their faith. It's really an incredible insight, isn't it, into the pastoral heart of Jesus. Here is Jesus, and he is, as we'll see in a few moments, carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And yet this same Jesus is concerned about the welfare and the well-being of these fragile disciples. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can hear the Lord's command to pray in times of trouble and testing. As we go through the Old Testament, we see that God's people prayed in times of trouble and testing. When Hannah found herself desolate over her childlessness, she prayed. When Asaph found himself facing the day of trouble, he prayed. When Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat found themselves being threatened by foreign powers, they prayed. And now Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray in this hour of trouble and testing. He knows that Satan is going to come. And he's going to come at them and will tempt them to doubt him. He knows that Satan is going to come at them and will tempt them to deny him. He knows that Satan is going to come at them and will tempt them even to disown him completely. Jesus knows what a ferocious enemy the devil is. And how the devil will take aim at every area of weakness in the lives of these disciples. The areas of weakness that they know about and the areas of weakness that they know nothing about. And Jesus is saying to them, pray that you will not enter into temptation. Pray that you will not succumb to the devil's temptation. And today, friends, we have a Savior who continues to command us to pray. We all face times of trouble. We all face times of testing. How many of you are going through a time of trouble and testing today? And in the times of trouble, in the times of testing, the devil comes to us with words that tempt us to doubt the Lord. Words that tempt us to deny the Lord. Words that tempt us to disown the Lord completely. This very Lord whom we are following, this very Lord whom we are professing. And the Lord says to each of us, pray that you will not enter into that temptation Pray 
that you will not succumb to that temptation. Friends, as we consider the Lord's command, I want to ask, are you acting on this? Are you putting it into practice? Are you praying today, friend, that you will not succumb to the devil's temptation? You may not be kept from the storm. And you may not be kept from the tempter. But are you praying that you'll be kept from falling into the temptation to doubt the Lord, deny the Lord, disown the Lord? That's the Lord's command. Pray that you will not enter the temptation. But we move from the command to the commitment. Look at verses 41 to 44, where Luke now presents us with the commitment of Jesus. In verses 41 and 42, we hear the appeal that Jesus makes. Luke tells us in verse 41 what Jesus did. He withdraws from the disciples so that there is now a short distance between them, just a stone's throw between them. They will be able to see him in prayer. They will be able to hear him in prayer. But at the same time, there is a distance between them as he prays. And then Jesus kneels down. A few weeks ago, we looked at Paul and he was praying for the Ephesians. And what was he doing as he prayed for the Ephesians? He was on his knees. Then last week we looked at Elijah and he was praying for the Lord to send rain. And what was he doing as he prayed to the Lord to send rain? He was on his knees and here is Jesus and he kneels to pray. And Matthew and Mark add that he even fell on his face. And Luke goes on to tell us what Jesus said. Verse 42, he prays to the Father. Just as he had commanded the disciples to pray back in Luke 11. This is how you ought to pray. Our Father. And he prays to the Father about the cup. In Psalm 75, Asaph speaks about the cup of foaming wine, which the Lord will cause the wicked to drink down to the bitter dregs. In Isaiah 51, Isaiah speaks about the cup of the Lord's wrath that causes people to stagger. In Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah speaks about the cup of the wine of the Lord's wrath that makes people a curse and a desolation. This cup is the cup of God's judgment. This cup is the cup of God's holy wrath against sin. It is the cup that Jesus knows that he must drink for his people if he is to be their saviour. Either he must drink it or they must drink it. And he now sees the full reality, the full horror of this cup in a way that he had never seen it before. And so he prays to the Father, did you see, to remove the cup. Take it away, he says. Every fibre of his being is recoiling and shrinking back from this cup. He's saying, Father, I don't know if my mind can cope with this. I don't know if my body can cope with this. I don't know if my soul can cope with this. Father, if there be any other way by which my people might be saved, then please take this cup away from me. He's crying out, please, Father, let let things somehow be different. It's very much the crisis moment in the life of Jesus. The salvation of the world is hanging in the balance as Jesus is wrestling with whether or not he has the physical, mental, spiritual strength to take this cup and be the saviour of his people. Jesus is willing to give almost anything. 
Not to drink this cup. Not to tread this path. Not to die this death. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But the prayer isn't finished as he goes on to pray, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And in verses 43 and 44, we see the answer that Jesus receives. There's no audible voice from heaven, but an angel appears on the scene. Look at verse 43. Jesus has prayed to the Father, pleaded with the Father to take the cup away from him. And the Father sends an angel. And what is the angel sent to do? The angel isn't sent to say, okay, Jesus, here I am. I am going to take this cup away from you. No, the angel is sent to strengthen Jesus to take the cup. That is the answer from heaven. John Rabbi Duncan, an old professor in the Free Church College in the 19th century, used to call this angel his favorite angel. And he said to a friend one day, this angel is the one who came down in Gethsemane and strengthened my Lord to go through his agony for me and that he might go forward to the cross and finish my redemption there. I have extraordinary love for that angel. I have extraordinary love for that angel, that angel who strengthened my Lord, my Jesus, to take that cup in his hands and die that death I should have died. And following the appearing of the angel, Luke records the absolute agony of Jesus. Look at verse 44. The angel has come. The angel is strengthening Jesus, but Jesus is in agony. The prospect of drinking this cup causes him indescribable pain. He goes on and he tells us that Jesus prayed even more earnestly, even more fervently. And finally he tells us that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood that fell to the ground. Now some writers, and and I used to hold to this view but I've changed. Some writers suggest that the pressure was so intense that Jesus literally sweated great drops of blood. That it's as if the blood vessels are bursting and protruding from his skin. But it makes better sense to say that the pressure was so intense and Jesus was sweating so profusely that his sweat began to fall to the ground like great clumps of blood. Have you ever sweated like that? That it's just pouring off you? I've Sometimes been like that before certain church meetings, sometimes before taking a service or sometimes before presbytery and I wake up and my body is caked in sweat. Every part of the bed sheets is sticking and wet. It's, it's horrible, but, but it's nothing like what Jesus is going through. The sweat dropping to the ground like blobs of blood. Luke's making it very clear that Jesus doesn't view the cross with cool detachment. It it disturbs him. It horrifies him. It leaves him caked in sweat and agony. Friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the commitment of Jesus. 
the commitment of Jesus to obeying his Father and saving his people. You see, throughout the Old and New Testaments, we see this emphasis on an eternal agreement between the Father and the Son, where the Son agrees to save his people. It's what theologians call the covenant of redemption. John Flavel imagines the scene in the following way. The father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. What shall be done for them? And the son says, oh, my father, such is my love and pity for them that rather than that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you will require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they suffer it. Upon me be all their debt. And the father says, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penalty. And if I spare them, I will not, I cannot spare you. And the son says, I am willing, father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay their debt. And though it would utterly undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it. That is the agreement between the Father and the Son from all eternity. And now, friends, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Go back to the slopes on the Mount of Olives. There's Jesus. There's Jesus kneeling just a stone's throw from the disciples. And he's thinking about the cross. And he's thinking about all that the cross is going to involve. And he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is it possible, Father? And the father says, no, my son, it is not possible. Uh, And the son says, why, father? Why is this not possible? And the father says, because we promised. We had an agreement. And you gave your word. And the son says, but they hate me, father. And they doubt me. Look at Peter over there. He's fallen asleep. And he's going to deny in a few hours with curses that he even knows me. And the father says, I know, my son, I know, but we promised. You gave your word. And the son says, then how far do you want me to go? How far are you willing me to step this path? And the father says to the very end, my well-beloved son, to the very end, to that end point, to the cross at Calvary, to that place where you will be left with nothing but the hollow cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as you embrace the cup in all its fullness and drink it down to its very last dregs. That is how far I want you to go, my son. I want you to go to the very point where you will be left with nothing but the cry, it is finished. So that Peter and James and John and Robert and Roddy and David and Katie and Susan and Malcolm and all these others in the high free will have no cup to drink. And Jesus whispers back, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Brothers and sisters, this is our confidence today. This is our ultimate assurance today. This is the basis for all our joy today. This is why we go to the table today. We see the commitment of Jesus 
to doing his Father's will and saving his people, no matter the cost to himself. Do we marvel at our Saviour, his commitment to his people? Third and finally, we come to the compassion. Look at verses 45 and 46, where Luke presents us now with the compassion of Jesus. Verse 45, we see the return of Jesus. Remember where he's been. He's entered this garden. He's urged his disciples to pray so that they will not enter into the temptation in the hour of darkness. He has then gone a short distance from them. They can still see him. They can still hear him. And he has prayed that this cup of wrath, which he must drink for them and for all his people, might be taken from him. He feels so unable to go through with all of this. And he has concluded the prayer with the words, Thy will be done. Your will be done, Father. And Jesus now returns to the disciples and he's met with a very depressing, disappointing scene. Look at verse 45. The disciples are sleeping. And Luke adds that they were sleeping for sorrow. They've heard Jesus speaking about his body being broken and his blood being poured out. They've heard Jesus speaking about one of them betraying him, one of them denying him, the rest of them fleeing away from him. And it's all weighing so heavily on their minds and on their hearts that they they fall asleep for grief, for sorrow. I don't know about you, friends, but I can easily empathize with these men. Have you ever been so upset, so broken by grief for a really hard situation that, that it exhausted you? All you could do was sleep. And you thought sleep would never come. I remember going through something a few years ago and it really got me down. And I came home from this particular situation and I put on a Rangers match. You know I love Rangers. And I fell asleep. I was just exhausted in my mind, in my body, in my soul. I had nothing to give. And there's the disciples, sleeping for sorrow. And in verse 46, we hear Jesus reiterating that original command to the disciples. He begins with a very gentle rebuke. Why are you sleeping? The disciples have been given one very simple task, the command to pray, and the command to pray for their own benefit. But they have responded by falling asleep. But Jesus isn't finished. As he repeats, he reiterates the command that he had previously given to them. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't shout and tell them to get their act together. He doesn't say that he is now washing his hands of them. Instead, he says, rise and pray that you will not enter into temptation. Friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the amazing compassion of Jesus. Look at Jesus' compassion toward these disciples. These men have listened to all that Jesus said in the upper room. And all that they have been asked to do on this very solemn hour, this darkest of nights, is to pray for themselves. That's all they've been asked to do. That's all. Just pray. And they all fail. They all fall asleep. Not one of these men is able to stay awake. Not Peter, not James, not John. But Jesus doesn't see their failure as being final. And this compassionate Savior who who loves to restore those who have fallen comes to them and he commands them to pray. He, He isn't finished with them. And that is the same compassionate Savior that you and I have today. 
I want you friends to cast your mind back to our communion in February 2020, that last communion that we had. Cast your mind back to it. Seems like a lifetime ago. Chris said last night it's about seven communion seasons we've missed as a congregation. How have you fared as a Christian since the last time you put the bread and the wine to your lips? How have you fared? Perhaps some of you can look back and you can see how much you've grown, how much you've flourished as a follower of Jesus. In that time, I hope some of you have. But I'm sure that there are those of us who can look back and we can see the various ways that we have failed the Lord. Times when we were spiritually sleeping instead of praying. We look at the past year and we see failure. We look at the past month and we see failure. And I wonder, friends, did you last Sunday say, well, do you know what, I haven't done so well over the last year and I haven't done so well over the last month, but you know what, I am really going to try hard this week. And then you look back at the last week and again you see failure. And then on Friday or Saturday you said, you know what, I am really going to get my act together and I'm really going to be faithful just for the next 24 hours. And you look at the last few hours and and you see failure. And to quote a Bruce Springsteen song, you feel that the devil's now snapping at your heels. He's, He's right there in your face. He's telling you that you may as well give up. He's coming up with every reason as to why you shouldn't go to the Lord's table tonight. He's coming up with every reason why you should deliberately absent yourself from the Lord's people. Why you should deliberately absent yourself from the Lord's appointed means of grace. And today the gospel presents us with a compassionate saviour who comes to us people with the assurance that their failure doesn't need to be final. Their failure doesn't need to be final. Last Sunday, we celebrated the fact that Jesus is the warrior of heaven. He is the great conqueror. It's a beautiful truth. But today let's fix our minds and our hearts on this compassionate Jesus. This Jesus who has great gentleness toward those who fail. Those who fall. Those who can't get their act together. Those who can't pick themselves up. Those who can't even rouse themselves until he says, why are you sleeping? My friend, you have a faithful Jesus today. And he's inviting you to come to his table. Because he knows you need strength. He knows you need encouragement. He knows you need comfort. He knows how hard the Christian walk is. And he's simply saying, come and eat, come and drink. Your failure doesn't need to be final.